0: Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about BetOnline.ag. Are you rolling with the Dubs against Dallas? Are you rolling with Boston over Miami? Are you rolling with the Avalanche now that Jordan Binghamton is gone for the St. Louis Blues? However and whenever you may be betting, BetOnline is the place to stop during the remainder of the basketball and hockey playoffs. Use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V to get a 50% Welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts.
1: Good.
0: on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live, because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is May 26th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening uh, we got Heat Celtics coming up after this in a uh, Game 5 where the winner wins the series 81% of the time. We'll talk about Heat Celtics in a sec. Well, I guess a little while. <laughs> because, so again, taking you behind the curtain and taking you into how the sausage gets made over here, which I try not to do, but sometimes it's, it's more important more often than not. And when we're producing large amounts of content, sometimes it can be formulaic. And this is one of those formulaic type of days in terms of, hey, we've got an A block, we've got a B block, et cetera, et etc., cetera, even though it's not normal. So basically, taking you behind the scenes here, yesterday we had the episode with Walter and Joe Camo set up for Monday. It was going to be Wednesday's episode because it was a Warriors and Mavericks game in between, which the the, the Mavericks ended up winning anyways, so it wasn't really necessary to keep doing we did the Warriors appreciation post already as far as I'm concerned that series is over even though Dallas might give them a run for the money similar to how Toronto gave the Sixers a run for their money and the Warriors got or the the Sixers got like six less games anyways the point still like we we had that set up as the episode and then in the afternoon on when on Tuesday we got the news about the mass shooting in Texas. And it was 101 degrees where I was. And in my mind, I started going through all these different thoughts and what I wanted to write out because I didn't want to do the same podcast we did a month ago when talking about mass shootings in Sacramento and have it be one of those like, ah, everyone's talking about this on this day. And, you know, obviously it's the news story of Wednesday. And... It's a massive tragedy and what happens around gun violence is I have figured out that I don't do well with tragedy in those situations anymore because the state of gun violence in America in term the state of gun control and gun violence in America is at such a poor point that years ago I decided to stop reading the headlines and I decided to stop mourning the tragedies. Because it felt like a hopeless thing and there's so much going on in the world that it's an issue that doesn't particularly call to me in terms of like being out there and being an activist and being outspoken on. And it's something that's really important because we're talking about hundreds Uh, Or I guess over years, hundreds of thousands, but more specifically hundreds, if not thousands of lives every single year at the result of gun death, whether it's by suicide, mass shootings, etc. In America, the gun culture in America is something that's incredibly prevalent. And so anyways, what I usually do in these situations is I wait because the day after a tragedy, it is a tragic event And doing the macro level conversation is something that's usually frowned upon. Now, we can have a larger conversation about how in our culture and in our news cycle, which news has its own culture, there are certain talking points that are okay to hit on the day after a mass shooting. And it depends on which side of the aisle you're on. Some people will talk about concealed carrying laws, and some people will talk about um background checks. Those are things that when we talk about gun violence are acceptable. Um, if you're on the right, things that are acceptable are what about the situation, um pointing to the the evil, evil villains who commit these acts of hate. Um, those are things that we've decided are okay to talk about in the broader context of mass shootings on the day after a tragedy where, you know, especially in this case, there are hundreds of people who are in hundreds of families that are personally affected by this situation. And so... You're seeing, for those who don't know the context, of course, 18 children ages second grade to fourth grade killed in an elementary school in Texas. Three adults as well are killed. And even though there have been 200 mass shootings in America so far in 2022, culturally, I believe every generation lasts about five years, even if we we list like Gen Z, Gen Y, baby boomers, etc. as like 15-year periods. Culturally, each generation lasts about five years. And so you're looking at this generation's largest mass shooting. And it's weird that we talk about this in this context, but you can go down the line to Columbine, to Sandy Hook to Las Vegas and, and uh, Pulse nightclub in Orlando being part of a generation at the same time as like the Paris terror attacks. Also as a global standpoint, the way that we used to talk about terrorist attacks and ISIS in 2014, 2015 is the way that gun violence in America now works. Cause you can go to Columbine and then you can go to the mass shooting at Sandy hook in 2012, 10 years ago, four and a half years ago, Parkland shooting. And now you have Rob elementary school in Texas. And so now you have, This generation's mass shooting that, you know, hopefully will be the the one that we remember as the biggest mass shooting of the last five years. And so I didn't want to macro level conversation this immediately after the tragedy. It's why after the mass shooting in Sacramento, which for people who don't know, I live about 20 minutes away from where that is. I know exactly where that club was, where outside seven people were killed and a, a few more were injured. I didn't want to do the macro level conversation the day of, and so I waited until today to start this conversation because there's nothing different from what I talked about in Sacramento other than this is a larger, more national shooting that leads to, again, 18 second, third, and fourth graders getting killed in such a brutal fashion they had trouble identifying the bodies in the elementary school in Texas. And so... In the post-Trump world and the evolution of Fox News into talking about more right-wing rhetoric, there's going to be an uptick in hate crimes on the level of a Uvalde Texas or a Buffalo New York, especially within the context of you have easier access to guns than ever before in states with Republican-controlled senators. Because culture wars have pushed states in a direction where the money no longer, in terms of the Republican Party, for years the Republican Party was always guided by money. And while the NRA still guides money in that respect, the culture wars make it more about ideology. Which, when you hear people talk about the right wing moving towards fascism or moving towards far right principles, it's when the ideology supersedes the money. The ideology of exploitation and bigotry outweighs even the financial decisions, because in the American capitalistic system, exploitation of people who are not white, straight, cisgender males, who are a Christian, Catholic, Protestant, that's part of the system, and it re- financially it's rewarded going back to the original days of slavery, and indentured servitude, and the fact that America was founded on poor people selling their rights to free labor in order to move to America and the same system perpetuating itself because white power persists across generations. So financially, there's a bottom line to be hateful and bigoted. It's why the Republican Party used to be the party of Lincoln. And then during the 1960s, they flipped sides. People don't realize that in 1960, they flipped sides because financially, it was the best move in order to win elections was Republicans deciding we can go fight for the vote in the south and that ideology can get us elected in a two-party system in america and 60 years later you're seeing the ramifications of this and destabilization of the congress and the senate and just a lack of change as the world culturally politically economically changes around america there's a refusal to change at the very hearts of systems but all of that is a broader context for the past say 10 to 20 years where because of the type of rhetoric and the easier accessibility to access guns and act upon uh, hateful, bigoted hate speech in a way that reflects how the world worked back when black people literally were, like, in, if you, in the case of the Wilmington, they, they were literally thrown out of government. There was an overthrow of government by white supremacists. Like, we're talking about that levels of hate speech and acting upon hate crimes in America. And so... Last weekend, it's Buffalo, New York, and today it's Uvalde, Texas, which doesn't necessarily have a motivation in such a way. But the United States, what happens when we can't do anything about it and the change is persistent is that you can look back a decade later and each generation persists to have a mass shooting because this is content for the people in legitimate power. People, I mean, the Steve Kerr clip is going viral across the internet, of course, of him saying like 50 senators want to maintain and uphold power. Which there are people who have been explaining this long before Steve Kerr and hearing Steve Kerr be the person willing to say it because the Warriors are in the conference finals is the thing that's going to attract dumb sports fans. Um, Adam Grant is a psychologist, and I love reading his books. He has a good uh, point about this afterwards and statistics to back it up. On key principles of gun safety, Americans are united. 81% support universal background checks. 87% want to ban gun purchases by those with mental illnesses. 80% reject concealed carry without a permit. And even insist like now we are taking away the vote, and so all of a sudden you can't even hold people accountable by changing the people in power, especially in states where the Senate is controlled predominantly by Republicans because it's equal representation by all 50 states, not representation by population, of which point Democrats, about 57% of Americans, vote Democrat in a two-party system or at least have liberal-leaning ideologies. And so what's interesting about that in context to these tragedies is when the power is so protected that there is no accountability system and the money for people the money is too powerful where people on an individual level cannot make a difference you've been trying to make large mass scale change and by the way it's not to no effect like people's voices and people's protests it got what you might call common sense gun reform passed by the house of representatives in america and so what you're looking at in this case is it works it just can't institute real change and when you're stuck in this purgatory for years and years where you know you have to have a democrat controlled presidency a democrat controlled senate and a democrat controlled house of representatives to even have a chance to instigate this short term change and even if you instigate that change as soon as the party as the power slips hands it's a fight on the other side cuz the NRA is lobbying at extreme levels to fight for their own existence, and gun culture's prevalence in America and abroad, because for people who don't know, America is the largest manufacturer internationally of guns sold to other countries, including countries that have committed atrocities against human rights. And so, I've decided that, I I decided actually years ago, that, and because when I was a child, I was on the wrong side of these issues without understanding how the world worked, and so I, wanted, I want to save my emotional heartache for other issues. This is one where lots of other people are doing great work in trying to fight gun reform. I heard the story today about how in Parkland, lawyers tried to, again, after the murder of dozen, a dozen children at Parkland Elementary or not Parkland Elementary School, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, you saw a whole lot of push for reform. And one of the things that... They were able to get do to do when they couldn't revoke bi- people's access to guns, was that they got a red flag law passed, where if someone posts something on the internet that signals a red flag, the government can come and possibly arrest, detain people, um, put them on watch lists, things like that. These were these were laws that you cannot post messages similar to the person who committed the crime at. Um, at Rob Elementary School, you can't post manifestos on the internet talking about hate crimes or similar to the person who posted the manifesto in Buffalo. Like, you cannot do that without being flagged by the government and so this is like a small step in terms of like what can you do when everything feels so helpless and small change is still changed nonetheless especially in a, a on an issue where change does not exist on mass scale levels on state levels and national levels change does not exist in legislation even as the world changes around them and so years ago i decided that i was going to stop reading the headlines around this and The thing that I always said for years was I feel bad every time this comes up because I'm so resigned because at this point I feel the fight is not worth it and that the conversation won't sustain long enough for people to continue to instigate change. It's so out of the hands of the populace at this point, because there is a group of people who propaganda or otherwise the NRA has bought a political party, the, it's one of the hot button issues for the political party. And people who vote Republican have decided that if it means every now and then we got to kill some children with guns, that is not a deal breaking issue in terms of not voting the Republican Party into office. And that's understandable to a certain point because, again, there's so many issues that people have decided are not hot-button topics that are deal-breakers. Like, Because the thing that's going to push people over the edge is if it's a middle-of-the-road thing. The example I use all the time in sports, and it's not the greatest example, is the Olympics. At these Olympics, the human rights atrocities in China and the fact that the 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 president of the International Olympic Committee basically gave a pro-Chinese propaganda speech at the Olympics when the, the Chinese government is holding Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps and has committed human rights abuses against their people, who especially people who come out and speak out against the government or speak out against powerful people within the government. And then the story during the Olympics of the Russian um it was a russian gymnast or fig- no russian figure skater who at 15 years old had tons of drugs all throughout her body and had a mental breakdown after missing a a routine with a coach and all of the stuff that's gross about that i said i'm not going to watch the olympics but i wasn't entertained by the olympics in the first place what it did for me was that was the tipping point of i was already close to do i decide to watch do i decide not to watch and weighing the pros and the cons. And for years I decided to watch. And then I just lost interest in the Olympics. Because the Olympics is American propaganda. And it's it's a lot of feel good stories for people who don't like sports. And I realized I just don't really like the Olympics. That was the tipping point of years of, of effort around that. And some people probably reached the tipping point on this issue. After the mass shooting in Texas today. And the thing I had said for years was. I understand why people don't decide that this is not something that's a deal breaker. I think that racism, bigotry, uh, homophobia, misogyny, anti-religion, especially towards religions like Judaism and Islam that are regarded as like minority religions in America because they're the people who get persecuted in hate crimes. All of that is something that. Is it like a don't move the needle type of situation for me? And it's a thing that's pushed me away from the Republican Party altogether because they're actively committing genocide against people who don't act, look, and think like them, as much as it sucks to say it. Actively trying to erase people who are different from existence is the definition of genocide when you can talk about don't say gay bills in Florida or you can talk about mass shootings in Texas or in Buffalo, whatever it might be like you're talking. Then those are just big picture examples. Yeah. Again, we talked about Fox News in a post Trump world moving into far right rhetoric. And how there's going to be an uptick in hate crimes as a result of this. Just as there's an uptick in uh, hate speech, which is more vocal out loud. There's an uptick in people who subscribe to Nazism and people who subscribe to fascism and far-right ideologies. You're going to have this happen as a result of the rhetoric and the propaganda. And at the same time, you know, states that... You have these elections and then you have to operate within these states powers and the fact that Republicans have gained more power over the past 40 years than Democrats have. The point still stands like this is something where I understand why people decide that this is not a an issue in the macro that doesn't push them over the edge. And it sucks that that's a thing. I understand it's not a deal like seeing eight, every every now and then 18 children are going to get murdered at, a, at an elementary school is not a deal breaker. For leaving the Republican Party for some people. And I understand that part of it. I'm resigned to the fact that that's the case, and every single one of these issues are moving people there. And at the same time, pro gun propaganda is going to move those people back over when you don't hear a national story, or next week when we're not talking about mass shootings anymore. Like we, we move past Buffalo, we move past Milwaukee, we move past Sacramento, and we move back towards the next topic. There's so, again, there's been 200 shootings. At public forums in America this year and they and 200 different cities have experienced a mass shooting within the last 12 months and by mass shooting it's like shooting up in a public forum not just a one person on one person shooting like a shooting in a mass forum and so you're seeing what happens when nothing nothing like when everything feels like there's there's no change there. Gun reform is obvious, like we mentioned earlier, and we've not moved for 10 plus years on a macro level. There's been smaller scale changes to respond to just society changing as a whole, and the world continues to move around us, and there hasn't been macro level change. Five different presidents have have been in office since Columbine, two different presidents since Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, or yeah, two since Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and three since the mass shooting in Connecticut at Sandy Hook. And it is money controlling power and power resisting change in this case. And it at the end of the day, like the thing that I've said for years around this issue is when we decided we were cool with 20 children, 26-year-olds getting shot at Sandy Hook Elementary and we didn't instigate change at a time where you had a democratic or you had a democrat as your um you had a democrat as president you had a democrats running the house of representatives and republicans running the senate when we decided that was cool it was the effective end of us making wide-scale change for a generation that was that version of columbine It was that version of, this is where large-scale gun reform is going to happen. And then 47 people get killed at a gay nightclub in, I think it was 2015 in Orlando. And then in 2016, it's 50-plus people getting killed in Las Vegas. And then it's Sacramento, where 7 people die in a mass shooting. And then it's Buffalo, where 10 people are killed in a mass shooting. And everything in between from 2018's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting that kills a dozen teenagers at a high school. That's a new generation's version of a mass shooting. And Las Vegas kills 50 people. And so from there, the pandemic happens. We have bigger fish to fry. We have bigger issues to talk about. We're talking about race relations in America. Everyone's trying to fend for themselves in a pandemic that's killed a million people. Milestone was achieved last, or earlier this month. A million Americans die from a COVID-19 pandemic. That's the most pressing issue. It's racism in America during the summer of George Floyd. But then the, the corporate dollars change a little bit, but the money doesn't change real long-lasting, long-lasting meaningful impacts that we can see even two years later as the pressure is not kept up. And now it's guns again with a new generation's version of a mass school shooting. I remember I was in high school and we protested that for, I mean, it was a planned protest and then they adjusted the schedule for the protest and the protest lost its luster a little bit. And that was when I was a junior in high school and now I'm going to graduate college. So that's a whole generation removed and and it's back to square one. We're going to hold protests for a few days And there will not be large-scale meaningful change, I don't think. And the thing I've said for years is, once we killed 20 kindergartners, and I say we as America, America is to fault for that, letting it get to a place where that was possible, and we did nothing after that, you had lost a generation in the fight. When Stoneman Douglas happened, you had lost the generation for that issue, and then combined with the COVID 19 pandemic, you had lost a generation on that issue. This is another chance to move people, to move the needle a little bit. Maybe far right rhetoric has pushed this to a place where you're now fighting against things that didn't exist in 2012. It feels like everything is changing, but this issue has stayed the same, if not gotten worse. Since the place of 2012. Because now there's a ton of propaganda being pushed into this issue. Especially from the fact that Fox News accepts money from the NRA. Most Republican senators and uh, representatives accept money from the NRA. State governors accept money from the NRA. In campaign finances. and, And in campaign donations. So maybe it's gotten worse in terms of the money reflecting the power. And the power has gotten worse even as people don't agree with the issues on this one but power accepts the money and they're deciding they're going to let this one go even if it means killing 20 elementary school kids every now and then and it has to be a massive news story when we don't talk about when one kid gets killed or two kids or three kids get killed in a mass shooting like what happens every 10 days in america but you can survive that one because there's not a national news outcry around it And every five years, every cultural generation, you're going to get one mass shooting like this. Every new mass shooting is a chance to move the needle again. Uh, As soon as we were okay killing 25 children at Sandy Hook, we're cool with pretty much anything. Now you kill 18 children at Robb Elementary, and are we still going to be cool with it? Because we're not cool with it in terms of outrage and tragedy. Because anytime someone dies, it hits... The souls of people i don't think anyone is looking at this and saying this was something that was whatever like even people on both sides view this as a tragedy no matter how genuine or disingenuous you are feeling this to be people do show a, some semblance of empathy in those situations maybe this time tragedy will lead to change it would be much more difficult than say after sandy hook When that was a national conversation for months on end, and you had the NRA up their lobbying budget by nearly three times as much because they were fighting for the right to exist in America. The fact that the NRA isn't illegal in America is, I mean, it's a uniquely American thing with the Second Amendment right. It's it's NRA propaganda and NRA lobbying dollars have gone up so much, and we've allowed it to happen. We banned... Tobacco companies from lobbying. We've banned tobacco companies from advertising. We haven't done that with guns. It's the same issue. You have the power to do so. And it, maybe this will be different. I'm not going to say like, oh, nothing's going to change because that would be resigned to the fact that change is not inevitable. Change is happening all around us. Every situation, there are people today, it may not look like it now, there are people today who months from now will be on the, uh, the on the right side of history, who have been on the wrong side of history before, who will be on the right side of history after this. And we accept them and redeem them just the, the way I did after, I mean, in part Parkland, but just in general, being able to grow up and having empathy for real, not disingenuous empathy of thoughts and prayers, throwing up the hands emoji, things like that. Like having real genuine empathy for these situations and how scary people's experiences are when you live in constant fear of someone committing a hate crime against you. With constant fear of attending a concert and having to map out emergency exits and fear that you're going to be trampled because someone's going to start firing into a crowd. And all of these things, just listening to people talk about these stories, suggest that these are, you know, change is happening around us and change is not happening for the better. And so it's on government and regulators to respond to that fact. And it hasn't happened yet. So I'm not going to say that this is hopeless, even though I've resigned myself in these situations every because this is this is a once every five year moment. Statistically, a mass shooting on this caliber happens once every five years. So if this is the once every five year moment, then is this going to instigate some measure of real change other than cultural change? Is this going to institute economic change? Is this going to institute political change? There's always a chance. Not, just because it's likely, just because probability says, I mean, we talked about this yesterday, just because probability says it's unlikely to happen doesn't mean we can't impact those probabilities. Everything is a game of probabilities and efforts are, I mean, other than cultural change and protesting in the streets, although protesting in the streets is a really good idea, it's not going to beat the money and it might take new election cycles to beat the money. And it might take 20, 30 years to change it. If we decide that this is an issue worthy of pursuing, you can make the change. Not you on an individual level, but us as a society can, can make that change. So I'm not going to say that just because change isn't going to happen. Change is always happening around us. It's whether or not we respond to that change. Every there, Again, like I said with myself From firsthand experience There will be people after this mass shooting Who will move from the wrong side of history To the right side of history Because they were already on the fence And this is the thing that's going to put them over the fence It's just not enough to instigate Widespread mass change tomorrow It might happen a year from now It might happen two years from now It might happen three years from now In the way we talked about with Henry Ruggs that we as a society have decided we've reached an optimal amount of people we kill as a result of drunk driving. Because every year for the last six years, minus the COVID year, you've seen um, between 10,000 and 11,000 people die per year as a result of drunk driving. As a society, we've decided that's an issue where we're okay killing that many number of people. This is an issue that we've decided is worth fighting for. This is an issue that we've decided is worth... Pushing back against on society as large, because again, I'll mention the Adam Grant statistics again. Like, 81% of people believe in background checks for people who purchase guns. Um, 87% want to ban gun purchases by those with mental illnesses. 80% reject concealed carry without a permit. We've decided these at at the very minimum, these common sense gun laws are things worth pursuing, and it's a start. It's a start that's also been fought for 10 years. And if we're going to talk about real widespread change to protect people, which, by the way, we don't want as a society at large. We've decided we don't want that. People want it. If we take a pull of everyone, we've decided we don't want that. It's not something worth investing tons of resources into. At least on this level, it's a change that people want And then once you instigate that change, you can pursue more change and more change and more change. It's a fight that's going to take generations because generations have already, two generations now, the the generation of the early 2010s and the late 2010s, we just lost that cultural generation. We just lost two cultural generations, again, without meaningful legislative change. And so we don't want to make those changes to our laws as a society, but every mass shooting is a new chance. And culturally, more people will be on the right side of history tomorrow than they will be on the wrong side. It's what tragedy does to people. It unifies people around a common issue, which in this one is not going to unify people in the direction of we want more guns. Some people it will. Those people will be on the wrong side of history. And that every just because change is unlikely to happen doesn't mean we have to be resigned to that fact. Even if I am so resigned around this that I don't read the stories anymore. Even if I'm so resigned around this issue that I don't show the proper empathy around this because I need to protect my own emotional stability. And it would save my emotional heartache for issues that touch my soul a little bit more than this. Just because that's the case doesn't mean everyone has to be resigned to that fact. Because if everyone's resigned, money and power are going to take over. And money and power are going to instigate their will. The same way they already are. Where we're talking about, well, practically, the best option is to arm parents. And the best way is to arm teachers in schools. Like, the the, the decisions we've made where one party is actively fighting for it. And the other party is standing their ground on, we're not fighting against it, but we're not fighting for it. The more deaths you have as change begins to happen, people become desperate. And when people become desperate and there are no options left, they will turn to the NRA. They will turn to guns. They will turn to the thing that will make them the most safe when real desperation is hit. And we are reaching real desperation point in America. And that's not a hyperbole. That's something that's existed for years and years. We've been talking about the rhetoric of guns in schools. It's been planted in our brains ever since the beginning of the Trump presidency. And now it's reaching a desperation point where people are willing to do anything For a sense of safety and security after mass tragedy after mass tragedy. And more are going to be coming along the way. We either resign ourselves to this fact or we push back against it. And just because I have found myself resigned doesn't mean everyone else has to. I'm resigned to it and there are great people doing great work to help further along this cause. So, like I said, I am optimistic because change is inevitable. And change might not happen politically or economically because of this one shooting. Just every new opportunity gives a new generation a chance to right the wrongs of past generations. And this, like I said earlier, this one will move people from the wrong side to the right side of history. That's the thing that gives a short pause of optimism for me. It's not enough to actually make meaningful change, and it's not enough to save people's lives. At the very least, it will be the little bit of good that comes out of a horrific, horrific tragedy. I wish that we had another advertiser today so that the, the transition from talking about tragedy and gun violence and Gun reform and feeling resigned to the fact that the world is is skipping generations without actually making an impact on this issue and how hopeless it can feel at times, but we can't lose optimism because that's how change begins i could talk about that and uh you know acknowledge the transition it's a classic comedy trope acknowledge acknowledge just acknowledge the awkward transition and move on or i could double down and make the transition more awkward by playing some of our funny parody songs and theme music in order to transition to our next topic which was a truly shitty game five between the heat and celtics and I'm feeling like I'm going to choose option B, which is make it even more awkward by playing funny parody songs. Harry Douglas, Arthur Blank, Dante Fowler, Michael Vick, Devin, Hester, Hayden, Hurston, Caleb McGarry, Tack McKinley, Deion Sanders, Michael Turner, Grady Jarrett, Austin Hooper, Tevin Coleman, Tony Gonzalez. Warwick Dunn, Brent Grimes, Kyle Pitts, Des Turfont, Left Witch, Julio, Mascot has creepy eyes, Darren Hall and KZ,
1: Maddie won an MVP, AJ Terrell, Duron Harmon, Russell Gage, Vic Beasley. We're the Atlanta Falcons, we're always flying and we keep on trying. We're the Atlanta Falcons, we keep blowing leads but we try to fight it. Steven Jackson, Jalen Mayfield, Dan
0: Quinn, and Shanahan, Jeff, George, Jake, Matthews, Fabian Moreau. Mike Davis, Ito Smith, Devonta Freeman's Pro Bowl, Jock Keys, Rogers, Asante Samuel, Young Wade, Dean Pease, Mike Smith had a winning team, Henry Crockett,
1: Petrino, Calvin Ridley, Jaden Graham, Dion Jones, Tajay Sharp, or Daryl is a running back, Chris Lindstrom, D'Angelo Hall, some dude names a key-ish. we're the Atlanta Falcons. We're always flying and we keep on trying We're the Atlanta Falcons We keep blowing leads, but we try and fight it Dirty Bird, bring it back! Roddy White and Alex Mack, all furred Luke McCown, Super Bowl prostitutes Justin Hardy, Matt Shaw, Atlanta Braves, baseball beat With an onside kick, Dirt Cutter's an idiot Corey Peters, Richie Grant, Chris Chandler, Paul Warlow, Lee Smith, Jay Brown, Super Bowl's a no-go. New Brooks, Reed, Mike Pennell, Matt Hennessy, Doi, Toy Low, Lolo, don't score that ball, Todd Gurley. We're the Atlanta Falcons. We're always flying and we keep on trying. We're the Atlanta Falcons. We keep blowing leads and we try to fight
0: it. So yeah, Boston Celtics versus Miami Heat. That game was so bad. This whole series has been so bad. The Miami Heat have been so bad. Except for a first half of game one and a first half of game three, the Miami Heat have been so bad at basketball. Like worse than watching college basketball bad. Kyle Lowry has zero points in the past two games. Like when does Kyle Lowry ever have zero points in any basketball game? And I know Kyle Lowry is a shell of him former of his former self and playing injured. And I know Jimmy Butler has knee inflammation and Jimmy Butler's also just got a shit ton of mileage on his body. And god, everything that's happened to the Miami like Ma- uh, Max Struess was a huge piece for them and he hasn't made a shot from the field in two games like two and a half games, actually, if you go back to the second half of game three, like Max Struis hasn't made a shot in the second half of any of these games. And what's weird is that the teams that, well, first of all, Giannis, why couldn't you have advanced through this round? Why couldn't you have just gotten the easiest championship in the world? Why couldn't you have just had chris middleton healthy why 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 they were so close to the easiest championship ever and stopping the boston celtics anyways um in terms of actual analysis like the thing that's interesting about all of the teams left in the playoffs this year from golden state to boston to miami i know dallas is still alive but you know phoenix would have fell into this category too is All of them are middle-of-the-road offensive teams and top four defensive teams in the NBA. Golden State finished 14th in offensive efficiency, first in defensive efficiency. Boston was 11th in offense, even though by the end of the year they were still top three, and they have two go-to scorers, and number two in defense, only behind Golden State. Miami, 15th in offense. Uh, and fourth in team defense this is according to basketballreference.com and those three teams all play such similar styles to each other And golden state i know their offense is predicated more on threes and their their ball movement and off ball screens and it's basically like a system but like defensively they force teams into taking shots and when all of these teams aren't the level of three-point shooting that come to expect with like the top of the top of the league like the Warriors of the like the last generation of basketball. It was Portland can shoot close to forty percent from three. The Rockets can shoot close to forty percent from three. Now that everyone, but what and and of course the the Warriors, the Rockets, the Blazers were the t- the best teams in the league, all based on three pointers. Like, but the thing about that was you had the same guys consistently shooting forty four percent. What's happening now is like. Grant Williams is, I mean, this is the the, uh, egregious example from Game 7, of course, but, like, Grant Williams is taking 18 three-point shots and making 30-something percent. I think it was 38 percent, which is pretty good. It's not enough to, like, get you to a championship good. And the thing that's changed in this is that because these teams don't have elite three-point shooters and they take a lot of three-pointers because that's what's being given to them, Boston, Miami, and Golden State are basically saying we will let you shoot as many three-pointers as you want and we're just going to clog the lane and deny Giannis. In the case of the Bucks, we're going to clog the lane and deny Kyrie Irving and deny uh, Kevin Durant. We're going to clog the lane and deny James Harden. Just let you shoot as many three-pointers as you want and you have... Uh, The Golden State Warriors saying, we're just going to deny Luka Doncic. We're going to guard Luka Doncic on the perimeter. We're going to guard him double-team when he drives and dare people to hit shots. And lo and behold, the teams that are falling in the playoffs are the ones that don't have the secondary offensive weapons. It's Dallas' inability to shoot three-pointers because Reggie Bullock is going to go 0-for-10. It's Max Struess and Kyle Lowry are going to shoot a combined 2-for-30 In a two game series, Duncan Robinson is going to be unplayable for the Miami Heat. Victor Oladipo is going to feel like he's taking 35 shots a game and finish with three points like he did in game five. And what's interesting about that is what made the Warriors and the Rockets and these teams great was that they had locked down shooters from the perimeter. And the teams who they beat were teams that did not have that. So think about the classic Utah Jazz teams from the 2016 to 2019. So like right before they acquired, like the Utah Jazz were good enough to beat the Clippers who who fell victim to the same problem. The Clippers just didn't have enough three-point shooting. With This was um, post-JJ Reddick. He was on the Sixers by this point. So this was the Sixers team built around Uh, the last year of Chris Paul before he goes to the Rockets, and then Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams and Blake Griffin and what was left of DeAndre Jordan. Those teams lost to the, they're in this camp too, and Utah's problem was, they just did not have, they had Gordon Hayward, they had Donovan Mitchell, those guys could get their own shots, and they played great defense on other teams. When other teams figured out, we just deny the middle and dare them to shoot with like Joe Ingles, they're like, okay, now we have to sign uh, Boyan Bogdanovich away from the Indiana Pacers. By the way, an Indiana Pacers team that in 2018 almost beat the Cavs. In the first round with LeBron, a team that with Bogdanovich as a true shooter and Oladipo as a volume scorer, like an all-star tier four guy volume scorer, went seven games with LeBron James because reliable shooting opens up the offense so much. So Utah's like, what if we get Bogdanovich from the Pacers and we get Jordan Clarkson and we upgrade from Ricky Rubio to Mike Conley and we go out. And we get, um, God, who is the other guy? I mean, they had jingles before. Who's, I mean, I guess Royce O'Neill. but the point still stands. Like they realize that if you don't have reliable shooting, your offense becomes entirely predictable because the most valuable shots are at the rim and the three point line. So we talk about efficiency all the time. That's basically the, the, the math behind it is the efficiency is the three point shots and the shots at the rim so if you can't hit the three point shots we can just deny at the rim and if your defense is good enough you can deny people at the rim even Giannis Antetokounmpo, who again in game seven I talked about how he had 25 points 20 rebounds and couldn't get to the free throw line but if he had shot his average number of because he shot six free throws in the game if he shoots his average number of free throws and gets 16 point, 16 uh, 16 free throws and adds eight points because he's a 75% free throw shooter. That's a 33 and 20 game, and they still lose by 15 because they shot three for four or like three for 30 from the three-point line and the reason Utah lost to Dallas was because they shot three for 30 from the three-point line and couldn't play effective defense against even Jalen Brunson and even uh who is it was it Dorian Finney-Smith that had a big game in that series so these teams that they're playing and I know we think of Golden State as reliable three-point shooting and they had an amazing game too Even Golden State, not reliable enough as a three-point shooting team. Dallas, not reliable as a three-point shooting team. Milwaukee was not reliable at times. At times, they were good enough to get by. Boston's defense is so good that if you take the number one defense in the league and you just force them to control the middle of the court and you shrink the game like that, Jimmy Butler has no chance, especially with knee inflammation. Giannis is going to get his buckets, but doesn't have a chance in that regard. Bam Adebayo, who doesn't, I mean, I don't know if it's the body fat thing. Like, I don't know why Bam Adebayo, like, I get, it's maybe the same thing as Anthony Davis, where like, Anthony Davis should every time back down and just dump the ball over because he's really good at that, but he can also kind of shoot in the mid-range and also work a post-fadeaway shot, but like, the, the strength of those guys is just, powering lesser guys and just dropping the ball in at the rim. Adebayo just doesn't do that. Like Adebayo has smaller defenders guarding him and settles for bad shots. Now you have really good defenders guarding him and he's settling for bad shots or the offense is running through Gabe Vincent, Max Struess. And the thing is like all of, all of the math supports the strategy is... If you're not hitting shots, the best way to get out of it is to just keep shooting shots. Now, the argument is to get the ball at the rim, but the problem is, if you have the best defense in the NBA collapsing in the middle, you're going to expend a ridiculously large amount of energy for plays at the rim that are not going to produce because you have Al Horford, Robert Williams, and Jason Tatum all collapsed in the middle, that ball is going to get stolen. That Jimmy Butler ball is going to get stolen or he's going to have to work incredibly hard for an incredibly difficult shot, which is why some of these playoff series have scores that start to look like the 1990s because... Guys are trying to fight for the one some of the least efficient shots in the world, which are turnaround jumpers from 10 feet post up shots from from just inside the free throw line like the some of the least efficient shots in the NBA that expend ridiculously large amounts of energy and lead to injuries are how people are trying to combat the lack of three point shooting. Change the hate the player, hate the game. Change the rules, whatever it is. Like it, the strategy is to just keep firing. And the problem for the Miami Heat was they faced a really, really good defense, and that really, really good defense just controlled the middle and gave Bam Adebayo nothing and gave Jimmy Butler nothing. And even in a game where the Miami Heat played great defense on Boston, that Boston was shooting like ten percent. At the start of the game, Miami and Boston were like 42, like, what was it, like 41 42 at halftime or like 38 45 or something like that. Even as Miami's doing the same thing to Boston, the thing Boston had to fall back on is Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are. More of go-get-a-bucket type of guys than anyone except Jimmy Butler on the floor. And Jimmy, Bu- I mean, Bam Adebayo could, should, would be. He's facing really settling for bad shots. Settling for, I, I mean, I'm- <laughs> by the way, we're recording this with a minute 30 left to go in the game. Bam Adebayo literally just had a turnaround shot on Al Horford from 10 feet that hit the front of the rim and came up short. Like, it's it's so bad out there and and at the very least like the reliable pieces that were better at shooting all season they weren't great they were better at shooting all season would help them out not having Tyler Hero really sucks in this situation it's not a game breaker though because Tyler Hero is one of those players who uh, even though he had 36 and 10 in the bubble for the heat to to eliminate Boston it was a rare type of upset like the thing that Bam Adebayo has going for him, or the way the thing that Tyler Hero has, is like sometimes it's going to be fifty percent from the field, sometimes it's going to be forty percent from, the, or sometimes it's going to be forty, sometimes it's going to be thirty, sometimes it's going to be twenty, and in the playoffs, Tyler Hero, I mean prior to the Celtics series, Tyler Hero was shooting. from the three point line. We had that stat in your face back after game. So it was game four against the Sixers. And then he shot 0 for 10 the rest of the series from three. So Tyler Hero was probably going to be more of the same for Miami. Unless he had an all timer type of game, it was going to be more of the same problem, which is. Inconsistent three-point shooting against a strong defense that can just collapse on the middle, and lo and behold, that goodbye Boston, a goodbye Miami Heat. You have virtually no chance now. it Might force a game seven. It's just it's gonna you just gotta hit shots. He <laughs> hit shots, and then do what do to Boston what you were doing to them in the first half, and uh, you've got a chance. By the way, uh, Joel Embiid has tweeted out Miami needs another star. And this is really funny, because guess who is available this offseason? It is either Joel Embiid or James Harden. So maybe Joel Embiid is... uh, Joel... Well, he's also tweeting, Boston has just too many weapons. So maybe he's just providing commentary. I like that the internet's going to go to, Joel Embiid is uh, available for a possible trade. Maybe, possibly, perhaps... could end up together with Jimmy Butler again, because we know that Joel Embiid and Jimmy Butler like each other, and there's a non-zero chance that Joel Embiid is going to request a trade. Just possibly, maybe, could be. Um, The other thing that I was doing is, like, during the fourth quarter, I switched over. For the first time this postseason, I switched over to consistently watch an NHL hockey game. And now that NHL hockey game is in overtime. And I was hoping we'd get the end of the hockey game here on the show because the Colorado Avalanche were getting ready to advance to the Western Conference Finals for the first time in 20 years. And if you listen to the show on Tuesday, we talked about the story with the Denver Nuggets president Tim Connolly leaving to go be the president of the Minnesota Timberwolves and getting lowballed. And you may if you haven't heard it, I'd go check it out. but you may or may not have heard me say like Denver is not a, like the lo- smallest market in the NBA because hockey is bigger in, in um, hockey's bigger in Denver during the same time as basketball and i don't exactly know that this is true it's just been a trope for years and maybe the nuggets having success helps also the colorado avalanche have Nico- have their version of nikola jokic too it's nathan mckinnon the thing in hockey is that singular players sometimes don't ha- or don't have the same level of impact except when it's like all-time greats, and Nate McKinnon is that all-time great, and Colorado's consistently been there. Nate McKinnon's now probably in his fourth or fifth year, and this is going to be the first time in 20 years Colorado makes the conference finals, so like, him and Connor McDavid kind of suffer from the same thing, where they never have deep playoff runs, although this year is finally the year with, with Sidney Crosby's gone, uh, Ovechkin's gone. Um, the older names of hockey, uh, even the Boston Bruins as a whole are gone at this point. So this is, this is the year for, for McDavid versus McKinnon in the conference finals. If you're, if, if you're like me and you're a casual hockey fan, but you might've heard me say like the thing about Colorado. And I learned that Colorado made six conference finals in their first seven years when moving to Denver. And I think that that's kind of where I resort to it as a hockey town. Like, I don't know what 20 years of being, 20 years of being like the Denver Nuggets of hockey. I, I, I don't know if that's true or not. But like 20 years of being a, a team that doesn't do much and always has the number one pick. At least that's what it felt like for years was Colorado and Phoenix were the teams that always had the number one pick in hockey like maybe maybe decades of losing have changed that it's just always in my mind viewed like they care way more about the avalanche and avalanche sold more tickets and denver was a place that no one wanted to play basketball and all that stuff like also the demographics of denver used to be like really really white and i'm i'm sure it's probably still whiter than like phoenix but like i i think that all of that plays into Colorado's success or failure. And if you're wanting to get invested in like hockey storylines, because remember the thing I say about sports all the time is there's like one national sport and some niche sports in between, and we try and touch on some of them every now and then. Like I said, like this is the first time I've consistently watched a hockey game. As I'm talking right now, Colorado's working their way up into the blue line zone, trying to uh, eliminate the St. Louis Blues. Maybe we'll get a game winner at some point here. But if I talk long enough, maybe we'll get a game winner. But If you want to invest in hockey storylines, like the, the team in hockey right now is the Tampa Bay Lightning. And, and Tampa Bay is a legitimate hockey town. If you want to invest in the storylines of hockey, I think McDavid and, I mean, like, sometimes we do the stereotypical, like, who's going to run the league for the next 10 years when in reality that most generations get five years. Oh, goal! St. Louis Blues! Oh my gosh, the Blues are still alive. Blues who are still the weirdest champion I've ever seen in hockey in 2019. Oh, the Blues won. Oh, they, so the Blues were, Nate McKinnon had a hat trick with three minutes left to go in the game. He got the third goal and still the Blues scored with one minute left and then they scored the overtime game winner. Holy shit. Oh my God. They just, that, it felt like a red carpet coordination for the Avalanche. Wow. 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 Anyways, so like if you want to invest in hockey storylines, like, some, sometimes we do the stereotypical thing of, like, Jason Tatum is the future of the NBA, when in reality, Jason Tatum is, like, kind of the present of the NBA. And so, sometimes, like, Luka is the future of the NBA and is also currently very good in the present. And we're seeing this thing with Giannis, where everyone said in 2019, like, this is the future of the NBA. And yes, Giannis is, and they're consistently the best team in the league simply because they have Giannis, They were up 2-0 on Toronto in 2019, and only one time have they gotten back to that point. In three full years since, and now Giannis is on the back end of his physical prime. I'm not saying, like, Giannis isn't going to be a a champion-caliber player. We're seeing, like, the system of the Warriors is still good enough to win championships seven years after it first jumped on the scene, so, like nothing is is finite and concluded at all like it's not like winning championships at the highest level is the only measure of someone's career and at the same time like mcdavid and mckinnon have been talked about as like the future of the sport for years and years and now mcdavid's won multiple mvps and nate mckinnon is like in his fourth or fifth playoff run at this point so at a certain point you become the person now who is the present and i know they lost this game to the blues like mckinnon and mcdavid are still very likely to go to the conference finals like maybe calgary ends up beating edmonton but edmonton's up three games to one right now they had like a magical game four apparently i didn't watch it obviously but it was like a magical game four where they come back and win like, McDavid and, and McKinnon are, are the people to invest in. If you're interested in, like, when do I get into hockey? By the way, update, Joel Embiid has just tweeted, okay, y'all are stupid, LMAO, about the idea of him going to Miami. Someone just take away the phone. Take away the phone. Don't give away your leverage, Joel. I know you like to be the the troll, and I really appreciate that. Just just take away the phone. Take away the phone right now. Anyways, a long-winded way of saying, if you want to invest in storyline, I mean, stakes are already there. Like, playoffs give you the stakes. It's it's exciting. It's the same rules as any sport. You know, Game 5s, Game 6s, all that stuff. Stakes are there. If you want to invest in the storylines of a niche sport, McDavid and McKinnon playing against each other is going to be something cool. Because usually you don't get those matchups. Like, Tampa Bay and, and Boston kind of did that for a couple of years. And then they haven't met in the playoffs in a couple of years. And Boston's no longer a dominant powerhouse. But... Tampa, we've talked about them a lot before. They've won after years of years of being losers. The years of being losers for Tampa Bay, like they were, they were really good and they really underachieved for years. Like massive upset in in Game Seven of the. I think they lost like four or five Game Sevens in eight years. Third best record or f- fourth best record in the history of hockey they got swept in the first round, and then it all came together. They won championship in the bubble championship last year they're probably going to win the championship again this year they have the greatest goalie in the history of hockey in Andres Vasilevsky like this I mean hockey's totally random and the playoffs are a coin toss it's cool that in the end like usually the best teams escape in hockey so Tampa's going to be there Which, if you haven't invested in Tampa by now, it's a good time to start because this is the end of the greatest dynasty of our lifetimes in hockey. And this is, again, like, Pittsburgh won two titles semi-recently, so I don't want to, like, hyperbolic over-exaggerate on that. Hockey playoffs may be random. In the end, you usually get the best teams at the top. Or you get, like, the the weird Blues title in 2019 with Jordan Binghamton, where he's a rookie, no one's heard of him, and then all of a sudden, boom, best goalie in the NHL, and, you know, Blues lose him in the playoffs this year, and they've got no chance. So if you want to invest in storylines of hockey, I, I'm probably going to do it for some of the conference finals if I have time, because I just don't have time to watch sports. Um, McKinnon and McDavid and, and the Lightning are, are interesting. They're They're really interesting storylines to invest in. It's also interesting to invest in whether Joel Embiid's going to leave the Sixers. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up, sometimes on Sundays when content shall permit. Leave those downloads, leave those five-star reviews, all of that good stuff. uh, And take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you again. Tomorrow.